Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. This show is all about sharing inspiration, uplifting stories, and practical career advice from innovative, original thinking, and pioneering women from around the world. You can find us here every second week, or why not sign up at don'tstopusnow.co so you never miss a show. Plus, you'd make our day if you could rate or review us. It really gives us a boost in more ways than one. It sure does. Now it's time for this week's show. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Our guest today is Anna Rafferty, who runs a huge team at Lego. Her role includes overseeing digital and social engagement, apps, websites, memberships and subscriptions, magazines and publishing, community management and events. No wonder she oversees 1,300 people globally. Totally. Anna's had quite a remarkable career journey. Starting out of university, her first job was with a dot-com rocket ship during the first dot-com boom, working, in fact, for one of our former guests, Martha Lane Fox, at lastminute.com. Anna's also worked for Penguin Books, the BBC, and spent a number of years working for author J.K. Rowling's company, where she got involved not only in Harry Potter-related digital projects, but also the Potter films and the live stage show Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Such fascinating experiences. Totally. Anna's now been at Lego, based in London, for four years. She's also retained her links to the publishing world, however, as she's chair of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Anna, in short, is one busy woman. Yeah. In this episode, you'll hear how she had a career epiphany at 23 years of age, Mm. what working for author J.K. Rowling was like, how one question helped her deal with overwhelm, and the three behaviours that Lego values most in its leaders. Anna's worked with some truly amazing brands and organisations in her career to date, so we think you'll love hearing her talk through her impressive journey. Also, just a heads up, we recorded this conversation at Lego's Play HQ in busy central London, so don't worry if you hear occasionally some London noises in the background. They're short, if not sweet. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Anna Rafferty, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for hosting us at the Lego London Hub. It's very exciting to be surrounded by Lego. Play Play HQ. Exactly. Play HQ. What a great place to be. (laughs) So, as I think you know, one of the first questions we always ask our guests is, if you were at a dinner party and you didn't know these people. How would you describe what you do? I did know that was one of your um, first questions because I am already a fan. Um, I am with some of your previous contributors when um, thinking that this is a particularly difficult question to answer. (laughs) Um, However, 
what I would love to say to somebody new is start from the fact that I get paid and I feel incredibly fortunate that I get paid really to think about playing every day. And I'm so lucky because I work for the Lego group and I look after a function here, which is called digital consumer engagement. And our role is a lot of us in this team. It's about 1300 people all over the world. But our role is to create, nurture, um, develop the long-term two-way, really meaningful relationships that we as a company have with all of those children and parents and fans, you know, what, of whatever age, children of all ages <laughs> around the world. So I feel very, very lucky that that's, that's how I earn my living. I also have a sort of another head in which I act as the chair of the board of trustees for the Women's Prize for Fiction, which is a literary prize in the UK. The Women's Prize has been going for 28 years. We still have the same mission to celebrate excellent fiction written by a woman in English um, in, in a year. But we are also a charitable trust. So we have sponsors, we have patrons, we have fundraisers. And um, we use the energy that the prize gives us, of course, and the platform it gives us, and then the money that our supporters give us to put together programs to find new writers, you know, to access new talent, particularly to open the door to women who maybe never thought that they might be able to have a creative life because they don't have the right background or, you know, didn't come from the right schools. And so we really focus on access and equity in the world of books for all women to allow all women to be able to own their story. How amazing. What an incredible sort of full life you're living. I feel really fortunate and lucky, um, but they are two massive passions of mine. When you were growing up, what did you think you were you wanted to do? <laughs> well, lots of things. For a while, I wanted to be a witch because a witch? <laughs> who would not want to be the witch in the story? Um, <laughs> all these of my peers wanted to be the princess oh, and I on, really no, wanted to I'm, be the witch. Okay. Yeah. So, now I'm seeing one of your career choices that we'll come back to. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to do lots of things. I always wanted to, I suppose, work with words and stories and storytelling, hence the witch, perhaps, you know, being captivated by that. I certainly didn't think I was going to make my career with this bedrock of digital and technology, which has ended up being true by a great deal of luck um, and meeting Martha Lane Fox at the right time and her offering me my first job out of university as a copywriter and, you know, thereby sort of flicking a domino that brought me into an arts and entertainment and play world, but with this you know, digital. layer of digital, yeah. exactly, and expertise. But I think the thing, perhaps the passion, which hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I can look back at now and know that that is true, is that, you know, when I was little, I grew up in, you know, London in the 1980s as a child of a single parent, um, which was, you know, not a popular position to be in and was very aware of inequality of the fact that some people had things and other people didn't. Um, and that sort of idea of, I guess, access um, has been really important to me my whole life. Um, so purpose. And so I might not have been able to say what job that I want to do, but I definitely always felt like I wanted to help people and make sure it was a good thing to do. Yeah. And were you able to articulate 
any of that purpose when you were younger or has it taken now and looking back to be mm. able to articulate what your purpose is? My proper sense of self-awareness around purpose happened at around the age of 23. It's quite young. You know, it's it's interesting that I say it now because there was a real epiphany, actually. My first job, as I mentioned, was at lastminute.com, straight out of university. And this is the height of the dot-com boom. It was wonderful. It yeah. was an exciting time. And, you know, you, if your listeners have heard Martha's um, podcast, that I know that you had her as a guest in the past, and she talks a lot about that time. And it was super exciting. I was there through the IPO. And, you know, it was an amazing place to be. Um, it was thrilling. It was accidental for me. and But I had jumped on that train, and I felt very lucky to be on it. I made, again, hindsight being a wonderful thing, but probably a pretty bad decision to leave because I had been headhunted with more money to go to a digital agency. And I left and realized pretty quickly that an agency, while it taught me lots of excellent things, like how to pitch, how to learn a new industry overnight. And I'm a very curious person. So that was very satisfying. But actually, I had been forged in a dot com sort of startup environment in which you're all in, you know, and you work long hours and you're really committed. You know, my metaphor was always, I just need to be fully in love. I can't be dating multiple clients at the same time. And so I realized that, but you know, I was still learning. And then one day I was, what I was doing was writing pitches and strategy and um, strategic proposals for different clients. Like I said, could be really interesting, incredibly varied. You know, I could be doing pickling vinegar one minute and asset management the next. Yep. And then one day, the two things happened in my life at the same time. So firstly, my little brother, who's three years younger than me, his best friend, so they were, they were young. I think I was 23. And so he, they would have been 20 and in university. And his best friend fell over at a freshers night and shattered all the bones in his arms and wow. realized by that happening that he had a very rare and already massively spread uh, bone cancer. We realized quite quickly it was really aggressive and it was terminal and it was incredibly unfair. And this young man had been in my house for my whole childhood, hanging around with my little brother, like another little brother. And he died. And the following week I went into work and I was already feeling a bit like, not quite sure this is for me. And I was asked to do a pitch for an industry that I won't name because, you know, it's plenty of people also work, I'm sure, in that industry and lovely people. But it wasn't something that was important to me. And I thought, what am I doing? I only have one life. It can end at any time. This isn't what I studied for. And this is not what my mother made all her sacrifices for to enable me to be the first person in my family to go to university and all of those things. So I'm not going to do it. And I resigned. Um, And so that is a very crucible moment in my memory where it's probably pretty foolish. You know, I didn't have a job to go to, but I thought, I don't want to do this. I want to do things that positively add to the world. Yeah. I now realize not being 23, that's a very privileged position to be able to say that. But I felt like I didn't have anything to lose then. I had no mortgage or children or anything of my own. And so I did. And I, you know, I volunteered actually for eight months um, and worked in a primary school and, you know, did all sorts of things. And then when I went back into a full-time job, I went to work for the Victoria and Albert Museum. And then if your listeners don't know, it's a it's a design museum, you know, publicly funded in South Kensington in London. Absolutely iconic. It's beautiful yeah, it and is. it's a great place to work. They don't pay you very much money. And, and, well, gosh, again, 
that's a privilege to say, but you know, you, it's full of clever, amazing people who are the world's experts on, you know, silver or whatever it might be. And it's just a very inspiring place to be. And from there, I think I've had a really good run of being able to choose to work in places that I think positively contribute to the world. So from the V&A to Penguin Books, where I stayed a long time, 11 years, you know, to working for JK Rowling for her business, the BBC, uh, and now, of course, you know, the Lego Group. Such iconic brands, all of them. And before we get into some mm. of those more recent ones, I'd love to take you back to the 10 years or so that you spent mm-hmm. at Penguin because, you know, if our calculations are right, you probably joined at around the time where everyone was sort of calling the death of books because of Amazon and the, you know, the invention of the Kindle and, mm-hmm. and ebooks and all of that sort of thing. It must have been a fascinating time to be in publishing. You are exactly right (laughs) it was i mean i think it's always a fascinating time to be in Mm. publishing because there's the incredible privilege of being able to work with the most intelligent people in the world who have literally written the book but particularly for my role which was leading digital it was a moment of great disruption it was very very exciting nerve-wracking and I think it's fair to say that not just the company, but the industry was having a bit of an existential crisis or in danger of having an existential crisis. And some of the questions that we were asking ourselves, you know, really fundamental ones like, what is a book? Is it something that has to be on paper? Or is there a different way in which an idea or a story is packaged and distributed that is also a book. How do you distribute it? How do you get it to people? Are people going to read in that way? Do they see the same value if they don't physically have an object that's, you know, on their shelf? Penguin is a great organization and it really invested, I think, in coming to thoughtful conclusions in collaboration with authors and agents, you know, around all of those questions. I'm really curious because, you know, Penguin especially, it's sort of such hallowed heritage. It's an incredibly, you know, well-respected publishing house and brand. And you coming in as head of digital is kind of like the modern change agent. How hard was that sometimes to bring this amazing heritage organization Mm. with all of its history? I love that question because I think it's entirely reasonable, but um, what I detect behind it is perhaps a little assumption about what a heritage brand may feel like as an organization, which I think is, you know, if you have something that's very well established and valued, then you would want to be careful about maintaining it, which is fair. And therefore that might imply, I suppose, a um, resistance to change or maybe a slowness or something like that. And the thing I will say is that In my experience, and this is borne out, I think, by the very business model of trade publishing, that actually publishing is a business of risk takers and gamblers. It's sort of built into the business model. It's built into the culture to be able to take a gamble. So that means that the business is actually open to change, thoughtful change, assuming that you can satisfy yourself, that it can, you know, make choices that are going to positively benefit, they'll take them. They'll take those those chances 
set guardrails around them and do it. So I was very lucky is the bottom line. And I was able to get investment to do new things and get support and to experiment. And that was, I suppose, the 11 years I was there. If I look back, I would say that's the one word that really characterizes my time there is um, experimentation. Well, that's pretty much um, sort of a key, if not the key ingredient when it comes to innovating successfully, isn't it? And I'd love to move now from publishing house to blockbuster author. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned you worked for J.K. Rowling's organization, Pottermore. Mm -hmm. What was that like? That was amazing. Of course, for me, it was both familiar because it was the business of digital publishing. J.K. Rowling had been very smart when she had negotiated her book deals and she had retained her digital rights, which meant that when she was able, when when digital rights then became a thing, she still owned them all. Very, very smart. So that was comfortable because that was my comfort zone. But of course, I had huge amounts to learn about movie making, about building franchises, understanding all of that. But also, I was lucky to be part of the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the stage play. So bringing that to the London West End at first. And of course, now it is all over the world. So two completely new areas for me to learn. Very Gosh. similar, but really, really different and interesting again as well. Yeah. Can, oh, can I ask okay. the fangirl question? You know, I'm sure I will not be the only one wondering no, what was J.K. Rowling like? <laughs> well, I would never be able to claim that I knew J.K. Rowling very intimately, but we did have a monthly creative meeting. And, you know, I remember very well being wildly intimidated at the first meeting, um, being quite nervous and having written notes my script really in my notebook that I was sort of hiding but was there and in the end I said to her I said look I'm just really nervous so I've written my script out and she was very kind um, and understanding about that what she was to me was someone who was incredibly smart and incredibly focused on what she alone could and wanted to do so in our meetings she really wanted to focus on the creative experience she really cared about her fans and her readers. I was creating digital products on Pottermore. So what would a Patronus feel like if you were able to cast one and we could somehow manifest it through a computer screen? She really wanted to know about that and had a really strong view on it would look like this and it wouldn't look like that. And it would feel like this and it wouldn't feel like that. And no creative detail really was too small for her that she, you know, had a creative point of view that was incredibly strong. But maybe other areas which perhaps others could make decisions on, you know, she would be very like, you can do that. Yeah. You know, you can do that. You don't need me to do that. I can see why that really set you up mm. well for your next role, which was at BBC Studios and then on to Lego, where you've been for, I think, just over four years. Exactly right. Um, and you've got a really quite a big, broad range of responsibilities here, haven't you? I think everything from sort of engagement with all users of all ages to overseeing the brand voice. The tone of voice. The tone of voice. Tone of voice, not the brand. I'm sure there's a whole whole brand to that. Absolutely. To sort of things like digital transformation and digital safety. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's pretty broad. It is. I have a really wonderful team, of course, um, of experts who look after particular areas. Um, And as I said, I think the thing that brings us together is this idea of the direct and lasting relationship. And it's through 
you know, having the right tone of voice, for instance, you know, having the right digital products. And certainly, you know, we can talk about digital child safety. It's really fundamental to the Lego group, as you can imagine. All of those things are prerequisites to making sure that we do have a good relationship with our consumers. And did you say your your team is 1,300? Yes. So you've got 1,300 people around the world doing this? Yes. Wow. Okay. So that's a big team to be leading. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know from my time leading people, I wasn't leading that many people, but, you know, the thing that I loved the most was the people side of it. And the thing I found the most challenging and frustrating was the people side. You know, it's sort of like (laughs) it's got a a double-sided edge to it. What is it about your role that you really love, but yet also are challenged by? I'm probably there with you around the responsibility for that amount of people. I both love it. I love the individuals. I love seeing the work and the passion that I'm so lucky to work with every day. But it's not, I wouldn't necessarily categorize the the flip side of the coin of, of the people as being challenging necessarily. I think what's daunting, of course, is just the responsibility, making sure that all of those people, and I'm sure you understand that there's, I have wonderful leaders who report to me who all have teams, but ensuring that they all work together well, that everybody understands their place in this orchestra um, from which we're trying to create a symphony and that it makes sense. I'd love to jump in there because, Mm. you know, I think people do have this impression that Lego is a very sort of special company and organization. If you had to sort of summarize the company's culture and ethos in, you know, a few words or a sentence or two, how would you do that? Well, I'm lucky that I don't have to because others have. Um, and that, that wonderful brand team that you referenced earlier, um, we, we have a very strong purpose and mission. Maybe the thing I'll reference is something called our leadership playground behaviours. And this is across the whole organisation. It's very much been a ground up kind of programme design where we talk about the fact that children are our role models and that's not just a catchphrase. The idea is that there's, you know, things that we observe in the way that as a child, you are imaginative and something happens as we grow up and we don't have the same opportunity to tap into all sorts of things that we do when we're a child. And we've identified these three behaviours, which are curiosity, bravery, and focus that you see in a child in the playground. You know, I've got a nine-year-old and a just gone 12-year-old. And we've gone through the phase of asking every single question, you know, and the, the why, yeah. But, yeah. but why, but why, and why nine times <laughs> until you get to the <laughs> reason. You know, it's absolute curiosity. Like everything in the world is fresh and new and exciting and bright-eyed. And that's amazing. And it's by asking questions and um, having different perspectives that you know that you can learn and that you can empathize and put yourself in other people's points of view then you see the bravery and you know again you see children doing crazy things i see it still with my kids where they're climbing and i'm like okay you're right up there you know and they're fine because they're not paralyzed by the what might happen yet of course, it's my job to catch them as well. Yeah. Um, but that bravery of being able to just say something that might be 
uncomfortable or, you know, to really have a brave conversation, again, is really rewarded and explicitly and, and, and valued in the organization. And then focus. And anyone who has seen particularly a sort of three or four year old with an insect. Well, certainly this was my experience with my two sons. They would just watch ants for a really long time. And the focus of ages, again, is a wonderful thing that you can see children do. And it's something that we think is to continue to be celebrated and to give us tools to do that. So those, you know, those three leadership playground behaviors, we construct a lot of our learning and development, a lot of the ways in which we want to work together as an organization in this this construct of the leadership playground. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you think of an example you could share of, you know, how you work yeah. or you have a meeting where one or more of those totally. things are so, coming to the fore? I think bravery is a great one. Actually, all of them. You could be in a meeting and you can signpost that you're about to maybe step out of your own comfort zone by saying, look, I'm just going to you know, ask a brave question, or I want to be brave and put something out there. And the act of signposting in that way, we all understand, we have a shorthand. And, you know, we really do value it, because it's probably uncomfortable, maybe sometimes difficult for you to do that. But it will be well received. Or the curious question. So I'm not challenging what you're saying, I want to understand it a bit more. So could you explain this to me. I'm really curious about this. Please go into that for me. Um, That happens all the time. And does it help? Uh, Because I'm sure, especially in your area of digital and and digital transformation, you know, you have to be thinking about what's the world going to be looking like tomorrow and the day after. In terms of innovation, I'm sure that kind of curiosity and bravery in particular. Yeah. um, How does that play out? Well, the area in which I need to spend most of my time and the muscle that I need to exercise most deliberately is focus. I thought you were going to say that because <laughs> yeah. there must be so many opportunities. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, curiosity and bravery have never been a challenge for me, but focus. And that's also why it's nice that there's three of them because, you know, together we, they should keep us on track. And it's by realizing and sometimes having my loving colleagues say to me, we think you need to focus here, Anna. <laughs> um, but that will bring me back. That's classic. And and what routines or habits do you have for yourself to create that focus? It, you know, it is a muscle that I do need to practice. Yeah. And the thing that is helpful to me is creating moments of punctuation, of deliberate practice, where I explicitly know that for the next you know, 10 minutes, I'm going to make sure that I'm clear on what I need to achieve today, this week, you know, in the next meeting, whatever it might be, not just get swept away with the tide, you know. And I think it's about, you know, managing your energy, stopping and trying to be self-aware and saying, what am I actually doing now? Okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to achieve? And that helps me um, because I Otherwise, you know, without having deliberate practice um, around that, I'll be carried away by, you know, charismatic people or a great idea. Like I I know I can. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I'll be swept away by enthusiasm. So, so I have to, I have to punctuate myself. Yeah. I think punctuating is a really lovely metaphor for it. You know, we always talk about how really it's all about, you know, making sure that you've got moments of reflection Mm. and that's exactly what you're talking about. And, how do you manage your time? You know, you've got you've got a huge job. You've also got this 
the chair of the Women's Literary Prize, which I suspect is quite large and you're very passionate about it. Amongst other things. Amongst other things, plus, you know, life, (laughs) family, etc. What are some of the things that you do personally or what do you think about when you're thinking about managing your time? I'm pretty good at time management and you're absolutely right. I have to be. I've made commitments and what I will never do is allow myself to not deliver on those commitments. And you know, this is, I'm sure, something that lots of your previous, well, in fact, I'm curious because I think, and I call this and I say to my um, leaders that, you know, this is my, my inner prefect, but I need to, if I'm going to do it, so I'm going to do it and I want to deliver and I hate not doing so. And therefore I have very high standards about it. And in order to deliver, I need to be quite militant um, about time boxing and managing things. I'm still at the stage that my children need to be dropped at school and picked up from school. And so, you know, I have to manage childcare and all of those practicalities of life. And and there's no magic. Um, I have an executive assistant who helps me. I have a practice around making sure that I schedule the right amount of time to prepare for important meetings, to read documents properly. And of course, I just prioritise. So, for instance, I prioritise usually reading books over watching things. People often say to me, where do you get the time to read all these books? It's just like, well, that's just what I choose to do, you know, and so that's my prioritisation choice. So there's no sort of wonderful tip, I think, apart from just being conscious of the finite amount of time you have and therefore allocating it according to what's important to you. Well, and I think you're also, it sounds as if you're quite a planner. Again, not what I would have described to this imaginary dinner party guest. And it wouldn't be on your tombstone. <laughs> and, and not something that I feel is a natural thing that comes right. to me actually yeah, yeah, at yeah. all. Okay. However, just wanting to make sure that I do deliver means I have to. Yeah. And does that high bar that you set for yourself sometimes sort of bring you sort of a lot of pain and suffering? <laughs> because, because, you know, that high bar can sometimes lead to sort of perfectionism or beating yourself up because you haven't been Mm. able to reach this really high standard yeah I think that's I think that's true I think that's fair I had a wonderful friend and she is now actually a coach which makes lots of sense to me she wasn't at the time we were working together and I remember feeling quite overwhelmed by something that I needed to do for a deadline and I didn't feel like I was cutting through or making the progress I wanted to, feeling quite panicky about it. And I sort of confessed it all to her one day at lunchtime. And I remember her just looking at me, she's a very calm person. And she said, do you think you could be working harder? And I was like, I don't know how, I don't know how, Eleanor, how could, and she was like, well, there you go. You're progressing at the pace that it's possible to progress. And unless you clone yourself, that's <laughs> that's how it's going to be. And you maybe need to look instead at the expectations. And I found that just a really helpful reframing. For her to be able to say, are you not working hard enough? That sort of popped me out of my potential spiral. Uh, and I've certainly said that to other people subsequently. It's like, I don't think you can work harder. So you need to work smarter you need to manage the expectations of your delivery and other people's expectations as well. Yeah, such a great piece of advice. Anna, it's been so fascinating to talk to you. One question we always um, also like to ask our guests is, what does success look like to you? (sighs) 
again, I would have answered that question very differently um, <laughs> at different points in my life and my career. You know, success for me now is that I have spent my time in a day where I have genuinely added value to whatever I'm doing. And that could have been, you know, picking up from school or it could be adding my thoughts to you know, something that's going to maybe make a more significant impact at scale. Yeah, that I'm having an impact, that my time is being well spent. That's, that's actually success for me. Fantastic. And if listeners want to learn more about you or about some of the exciting things that Lego are doing, is there any way they should go to have a look online or please come to lego.com <laughs> and see everything that we have there. Um, everything should be there. And there are lots of exciting things uh, happening and, you know, new sets and toys and ways to play for children of all ages. You know, otherwise I would say, please go to the Women's Prize for Fiction and please support stories by women, you know, read books by women, maybe support the Women's Prize. We would love everybody's support. We'll, we'll um, make sure that it's on the show notes. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah, and if you've got any um, great recommendations, you know your your <laughs> I, top ten. I mean, or... I am the original like book pusher. Yeah. <laughs> I, I give people unsolicited book Fantastic. recommendations well, all the maybe time. We might get, Brilliant. Maybe we might get a few tips from you we'll put those in the show notes page as well great well Anna it's been fantastic speaking with you thank you so much for making the time we really appreciate it my absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming in it's been wonderful thanks Anna thank you I really loved this conversation with Anna. Yeah, me too. And it was so much fun being in the Lego London office, wasn't it? Yeah, it sure was. We're just so lucky to get these opportunities. We certainly are. Anna certainly worked at some iconic organisations over her career, whether it's Penguin or J.K. Rowling's Pottermore, the BBC and now Lego. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Yeah, no, it really is. And But it, you know, it does strike me, though, that... You know that perspective-setting epiphany that she had when she was 23? Although very sad, you know, it has had a really positive impact on her career decisions, hasn't it? Well, yeah, and it gave her her purpose too. Yeah, absolutely. I also found Anna's sharing of Lego's leadership playground behaviours, you know, curiosity, brave and focus, and they were all inspired by how kids play. I think that's just so interesting. Yeah, they're really powerful, particularly how Lego puts them into practice. Mm. I particularly liked Anna's honesty about the fact that the behaviour focus was the muscle she most needed to exercise. Yeah, yeah. You know, there must be just so many interesting and exciting potential opportunities that cross her desk. I really get that focusing thing, though, yeah, and how easy it would be to be distracted. Practically, I also loved how she talked about creating punctuation, those moments, you know, the semicolons in her day or in her life where she explicitly stops and works out what her focus needs to be. Yeah, it's such a great practice. And calling it punctuation makes real sense from someone who loves reading. Oh, that is classic. Yes. Talking about reading... Do check out our show notes page because Anna has shared an amazing list of her favourite books. So don't miss it. They look fabulous. Yeah, it really is a great list and I've already bought a couple. (laughs) Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Tune in in two weeks' time for one practical how-to episode. Until then, stay well, pick up a book and keep things in perspective. Ciao for now.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.